right, well, good evening, 7 o'clock service. How are we doing? All right. Man, it's great to be together. You guys are the best. My favorite service of all time. Not only is there a Bucks game, and there also is uh, the Indians are playing. And you guys are here, so you guys love Jesus more than anyone else who goes to Grace Church. I tell the other services that, too. I'm like, if you love Jesus, you need to come to seven. So it's a wonderful thing. But hey, I just wanted to uh, welcome you, especially if you're a guest. Like Sarah Beth mentioned, if, if it's your first time here at Grace, we want to extend a very special welcome to you. My name is Tony, one of the pastors here on staff at Grace. And I would actually ask you, if you could, do me a favor if you are a guest. And that's if you don't have to leave too fast, please stop me in the cafe afterwards. I'd love to hear your story, how you got connected, and uh, be a wonderful thing. Uh, if you are just joining us today, you're actually catching us at the end of a sermon series that we've been in that we've been calling Uncomfortable. And so this is a conversation we've had for the past several weeks now. And what we've been talking about together is we've been talking about what it means to make ourselves uncomfortable for the things of God. In fact, uh, if you've been with us for the past several weeks, you, you might remember uh, that we are looking together at we said is a very important statement. And so this is a recap. If you've been here, if you're new, here's the statement we've been looking at together. It's this. We've been saying that when the people of God become uncomfortable for the things of God, it unleashes the power of God and we join, we take part in the unstoppable movement of God. And so this is a statement that we've been unpacking and looking at together. And we said, here's why we think this statement is so important. Uh, first off, it reflects a pattern that we see all throughout Scripture. And so this, this pattern that we see when the people of God become uncomfortable for the things of God, it unleashes the power of God and we join in the unstoppable movement of God is something we, we see all throughout the pages of scripture. But we said we also believe that this is an invitation to every single one of us. That this really, in, in a sense, kind of captures what it means to follow Jesus. And so I know that not everyone in this room today follows Jesus. Some of you might be investigating the whole Jesus conversation. But what it means to follow Christ, we said, can actually be kind of captured in this statement to some extent or another, that when the people of God, that when a person is willing to deliberately and intentionally put themselves outside of their comfort zone for the things that matter to God, we said that, that there's actually a pretty dramatic effect that happens. When a person does that, when they step out in faith, when they make themselves uncomfortable for the things of God, it actually unleashes God's power in that person's life and in the lives of the people around them, in the world in which they live in. And we said that as a result of that, we get to be used by God and we get to take part in this unstoppable movement that God is already doing and he's working on this earth. So as we've been processing through, and of course, in this series in particular, we've been looking at this first statement, and we've been saying, practically speaking, what does that actually look like for the people of God to make themselves uncomfortable for the things of God? So practically speaking, how do we do that? And that's what we've been looking at for the past several weeks. Um, next week, like I mentioned, we're going to be starting a brand new series, and you can probably guess that series is called Unleashed, and we're going to be talking about the second part of the statement. What do we mean when we say that God's power is unleashed through us? Like, what does that actually look like? And practically speaking, what does that mean? But today, as we kind of finish this conversation on uncomfortable, uh, I just want to mention, by the way, that all the previous talks in this series that we've had, if you miss those and you want to catch up, you can grab all of those on our website, our website, our podcast, and our app. Um, all of those platforms are free. Um, there's some information in your program how you can access those, and I would encourage you to do that. But as we finish today's conversation, we're going to talk about one final aspect of what does it mean to, for the people of God to make themselves uncomfortable for the things of God. And so here's what we're going to do today. The title of today's talk might seem kind of strange to you. It's actually called Uncomfortable Bride. 
an uncomfortable bride. That's the title of today's conversation. That might sound really weird to some of you. What do we mean when we're saying uncomfortable bride? And here's what we're going to say. We're going to say that part of what it means for the people of God to be uncomfortable for the things of God is that we have to be willing to embrace uh, our identity and this understanding of being a bride, the uncomfortable bride. Now you're like, that sounds real weird. What are you talking about? So let me show you what I'm talking about. If you got your Bibles, why don't you grab them with me? We're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So we're going to go. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is the passage we're going to spend our time in here tonight. And uh, you can go ahead and find that in the Bible that you brought or the app that you have on your phone or your device. Or if you need to use one of our Bibles, feel free to grab one of our Bibles. We have some black hardback Bibles either underneath your chairs or in front of you. Page 807 is where you're going to find 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So go ahead and get there. And then let me just say as well, if you don't physically own your own copy of the Bible, we would absolutely love if you would take one of ours, make that a gift from us to you. We think it's important that you have your own Bible. So 2 Corinthians 11, go ahead and find that. Now as you're flipping there, um, I don't know if you've been in the series, you may have picked up on this. One of the things that we're doing in this series is each week we're looking at a different image or a different metaphor that is used to help explain what our relationship with God is like for those of us who follow Jesus. So if, I don't know if you've noticed this, if you're, if you're a Bible person or whether you're not a Bible person, uh, one of the things that you will notice when you go through the New Testament is there are a bunch of different images that are used to explain what our relationship for those of us who follow Christ is like. And so, for example, a few weeks ago, we talked about this idea that the Bible says when a person starts following Jesus, that we are now part of the family of God, right? That is one of the images the Bible uses, that God is our father, that we are brothers and sisters for those of us who follow Jesus. And it says something about the way we interact with God. It says something about the way we interact with each other. And it also says something about the way that we interact with the world, that we are to invite other people into this family, right? But that's not the only image the Bible uses. The Bible uses a bunch of images. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about the fact that the Bible says that the people of God are like a building, that we're like a temple, and it's another metaphor. It's another image the Bible uses. And so a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that. Christ is the cornerstone. Those of us who follow Jesus are like living stones. We are being built into a temple where God's spirit dwells. And so we talked about that, but that's not the only image either. We said the Bible also describes Jesus as a king, that he is a king and has a kingdom and that those who follow him are subjects in his kingdom. But the Bible also says that God is like a shepherd, that he lovingly leads us and we're like his sheep. And over and over again, you see in the Bible, there's all of these different metaphors and images that are used to describe our relationship with God. And the question is, why are there so many images? And here's why. Because no single one image is going to completely satisfy understanding what our relationship with God is like. Understanding our relationship with God requires all of these different, various facets of understanding what he's like. And so to only understand God as shepherd and not understand him as father is to misunderstand something about his heart. Does that make sense? And so today what we're gonna see is that one of the images the Bible's gonna use, and it's probably gonna come no, no surprise to you based on the topic, the Bible's gonna say that those who follow Jesus, that we are like his bride, and that he is like our groom, and that our relationship with God is to be like a marriage. In fact, let me just ask you a quick show of hands. How many of you have heard that before, that the church is the bride of Christ, right? Maybe you've heard that. But have you ever really thought about it? What does it actually mean when the Bible says that our relationship with God, for those of us who follow him, is supposed to be like a marriage? What does it actually mean? Well, it's fascinating. If you look at our passage, so starting off 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, 
I want you to notice what Paul says. So Paul, by the way, is the guy who's writing this book, the the book of 2 Corinthians, and he's an early church leader who's writing to uh, this ancient church in a place called Corinth. And here's what he says. I want you to notice. He says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you, now notice this, I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So here you have Paul, the early church leader, and he's writing to this church in Corinth. It actually was a church that he himself founded. And the reason he's writing them is because at one time, this was a group of people who had a strong devotion and a strong commitment to Jesus. But he heard that their, their interests began to become divided. And so as a result of that, he writes this letter. And what's interesting, notice that the image that he uses is he says that I'm, I'm jealous with you for a godly, with a godly jealousy because I promised you to one husband, to Jesus. So you see the metaphor? And he says, and I want to present you as a pure virgin. And what's he talking about? He's talking about marriage. He's using the, the marriage metaphor. And again, what he's saying here is that in order for us to understand our relationship with God, we have to understand this idea that our relationship with God is like a marriage. Now, it's not just here, by the way. This image of our relationship with God being like a a marriage is not exclusive to this passage. It actually runs all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. You see it in both places. So I'll just give you a couple examples. Check this out. In uh, Isaiah 54, Isaiah says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. And so in this passage, God is speaking to Israel, his people, and he says, God, your maker, is your husband, and you are like his bride. Uh, You see the same idea all over the Old Testament. Jeremiah 22 says the same thing. Ezekiel 16 says the same thing. The entire book of Hosea uses this one metaphor of our relationship with God being like a marriage. Now, in the New Testament, you see this continue. He's no longer talking about Israel, but it carries over to the church. So notice what he says here. He says, for this reason, in Ephesians 5, a man's going to leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two are going to become one flesh. It's talking about marriage. And then he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. That, that in other words, that all of this is, all this is saying is that if you want to really truly understand, for those of us who follow Christ, what our relationship with God is like, you can't simply think of your relationship with God in the way that a shepherd interacts with his sheep or the way that a king interacts with his subjects, or even in a way that a father interacts with his children, that to truly, fully understand what our relationship with God is like, we have to understand this as well, that God is like our husband, for those of us who follow him, and we are like his bride, that our relationship with God is like a marriage. Now, I know for some of us, that might sound real weird, and maybe you've heard that before, but maybe you've never actually spent some time thinking through, what are the implications of this analogy? If God is saying that that is part of what our relationship with him is like, like, what does that mean? And so what I want to do is I actually want to just think through that together with the rest of our time. And I think that if you, if you think about this idea that our relationship with God is like a marriage, it actually is going to illuminate three aspects of what our relationship with God are to be like. And so I think what we're going to see is it's going to say something about the, when the Bible says that our relationship with God is like a marriage, I think that speaks something about the level of intimacy that we are to interact with our God with, that we're to have with God. I think it says something about the level of priority that this relationship is to take over all others. And then lastly, I want to talk about how it says something about fidelity. 
speak something about faithfulness, about exclusivity in a relationship. So let's just think through this together. Let's start at the top. Let's talk about this idea of intimacy. And the Bible says that our relationship with God is one in which we are the bride and he is the husband. I think one of the clear things that all of us intuitively understand is that that is speaking about a level of relational intimacy. Um, so without a doubt, and I think all of us would, would agree with this, the highest level of human relationship that we understand is marriage. It's just the highest level. You can, you can have friends that are close to you. You can have family members that are close to you. But marriage is uniquely intimate in a lot of different ways. Marriage is a relationship where you come into a, uh, an agreement of faithfulness, where you're going to share your life together. It is a relationship in which we say two become one, right? This is, this is, this is the, the closest intimate relationship that we as humans can imagine. And of course, when I say intimate, I mean much more than just physical intimacy. Of course, that's a piece of it, but I mean intimacy on every level. Like, so for example, in a marriage relationship, one of the things you experience is intimacy of knowledge. Uh, you, if, if you're in a married relationship, a loving marriage relationship, your spouse will know you better than anyone else in the face of the planet. And you will know your spouse better than anyone else in the face of the planet. Right? In every other human relationship, you can, if you want to, you can fool the other person. You can conceal things about your personality. You can conceal things about yourself. And you can fool people, right? So you can fool your friends. Uh, you can fool even family members. It's difficult to do, but you can do it. You can conceal certain aspects of yourself. But in a loving marriage, it is almost impossible to do this. It's very, very difficult. In fact, you can even conceal things from yourself. You can have blind spots. You can fool yourself into thinking something that is true, but it actually isn't true about you. But your spouse will know that about you. Why? Because they, they are with you in every mode of life. Like I, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. So if you can't, let's just say you came up to me after service today and we came out in the, in the lobby out in the cafe here and you came up to me and you said, Tony, can I just tell you, I just want to let you know, you have to be one of the kindest, most humblest people I've ever met. All right, if you said that to me, I'd just tell you what I would do. I would, I would say thank you because that was very nice of you. So thank you very much. And it would feel good. Like who doesn't want people to say stuff like that about them? Right, that's a wonderful thing. But do you know what I'd be thinking in the back of my mind? Here's what I'd be thinking. I'd be thinking, oh, you just don't know me yet. And just give it some time. And once you get to know me, you're going to find out. You're going to retract that statement, right? You're going to realize you, you just haven't seen me enough. I Somehow I fooled you. Like, I don't know if it's maybe because I'm a pastor and some, somewhere over the years I've acquired a, like a pastoral disposition or something. But the truth is, give, me, give it some time and you're going to realize that that's not the case. Now, here's the thing. If my wife came up to me and she said to me, you know, you are the kindest, most humblest man I've ever met, right? If she said that, if she would ever say that, right? Well, that would be a different story. Why is that a different story? Because she knows me. She knows me better than any other human on the face of the planet. She's seen me in every mode of life. She's seen me when I'm in traffic. And so she, she knows me, right? And it's a totally different story because there's, a, there's a, a knowledge of intimacy. In a marriage relationship, you see this person in every mode of life. You see them when they're presentable to everyone. You know, when you go out to, for a nice event and they make themselves presentable and they smile and they put on their best social face, you see them then. But you also see them when they, give on, they put up their give-up pants on and eat ice cream and watch, you know, Netflix and those types. You, you see them in every mode of life. You see them when they're hungry. You see them when they're tired. You see them when they're happy, when they're angry. And because of that, you know that person. It's a level of intimacy. Intimacy of knowledge. It's also an intimacy of proximity. Uh, when you're married to somebody, 
all of a sudden, every space in your life, every room of your life is now permeated and it is transformed by the presence of that person. I remember when I got married, I remember this happening and Jess and I moved in and, and I remember all of a sudden the spaces in my life, they were occupied, right? Now, now there was a, a presence that was represented in that space it, and, and hers was the same way. All of a sudden there's an infiltration, that's probably a negative word to use, but there's like a, a permeation of that space. I actually remember pretty deliberately when we got married, I remember specifically the bathroom was a big surprise to me because all of a sudden now there's the presence of like all of this bath and body works debris is suddenly in my bathroom. You know what I'm talking about? There's like loofahs. I've never had a loofah in my life before. There's a loofah there. There was like um, lotions, avocado, facial stuff. You know what I'm talking about? Like when I was a single dude, you know what my bathroom was in my bathroom? A toothbrush, toothpaste, and one bar of soap. And that one bar of soap was for everything. It was like the one-stop shop. You know what I'm talking about? And all of a sudden, I get married, and now every space is, is transformed. Now uh, it's all like we, we're together. You know, like my, she's in my bedroom. She's in my bed. She's in my bathroom. She's in my closet. I'm in her bed. We're in, and all I'm saying is you, I'm belaboring the point. But you understand what I'm saying? It's an intimacy. In a loving marriage, it speaks of intimacy. I think here's what God is saying. I think when God says we're to understand our relationship with God as the same as a husband and a wife that we're in a marriage, I think what he's saying is that our relationship with God is to be the most intimate of all relationships that we have. That this is the relationship where you are to be the most known and it is the relationship where you are to pursue the heart of the other person the most. I think that's what God is saying. I think when God says that he desires a relationship with us that is like marriage, I think what he's saying is this. You can't, if you're following me, you can't know me from afar. You can't know me from, you can't simply limit our relationship to one day a week. Um, what God is saying is, man, I need, to be, I need to be in every nook and cranny. I need to be in every square inch of your life. There needs to be no rooms of your life, no compartments of your life that aren't transformed, that aren't somehow changed because of my presence in those places. There needs to be no places where I'm not allowed to come in into your life. I think that's what he's speaking about when he talks about intimacy. He talks about this idea that God, our relationship with God is like a marriage. And I think the fact that the Bible says that our relationship with God like a marriage, by the way, I think that also says something pretty powerful about God's love for us. It says something about, man, God's passion and his love for us and our love as a response to him. I'll tell you, one of my favorite verses, uh, this is in Isaiah 62, five. Here's what it says. It says, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Man, what a power. This is a, almost a scandalous image we see in the Bible. And this, this, when the Bible says that as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, your God rejoices over you, the, the, God is evoking, the image he's evoking is that moment when the groom first sees his bride on the wedding day. You guys know that moment? If you're, next time you're at a wedding, pay attention to the groom. I love doing this. If you guys ever go to wedding, you probably do the same thing. When I'm at a wedding, I love to watch the interchange between the bride and groom when she first walks down the aisle. I just love to see that. I like to glance back and forth and see you know, how she's responding and how he's responding. Next time you're at a wedding, do that, all right? So when the, when the doors open up and she walks out, if, if the groom, if you're watching the groom and his response is that he yawns, right? If he's like, or he pulls his phone out or something dumb, right? then you can be certain that that marriage isn't gonna last very long, right? Now, if, if that, that, that groom, if the bridegroom, 
if when he sees his bride coming down the aisle, if he smiles from ear to ear and he chokes back tears and he trembles with joy, if you see that happening, then here, here's what God says. He, God, listen, God has the audacity to say that that is actually the picture of God's passion and love and his desire for you. Oh, how God loves you and oh, how he cares, how desired you are by God. And so when the Bible says that God is like our husband and we are like his bride, it's speaking of a level of intimacy and love that this relationship is to experience. But that's not it. That's not it. It definitely speaks of intimacy. But I think the second thing we have to realize is that when God says that our, our relationship with him is like a marriage, it says something about priority. It speaks of a level of priority. Without a doubt, when you enter into a marriage relationship, that is a relationship that takes a, the highest priority above all other human relationships, for sure. And all other relationships are subservient to this one relationship. This is the one that takes biggest priority. I want you to notice what Paul says, back to our passage again. Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. And what's he jealous about? Well, notice what he says. He says, I'm jealous and I'm, 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 I'm passionate and I'm concerned for you because I'm afraid that you've been led astray from your, he calls it your sincere and pure devotion to Christ sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's a really fascinating term. Some of you have different translations, and it might say sincere and simple devotion to Christ. It's actually a really fascinating word. In the, the Greek language, the word um, sincere and pure or simple literally means not having an ulterior or double motive. It means singular. It is the singular focus. In other words, what he's talking about here is priority. He's saying, I'm afraid... That, that maybe your devotion to Christ has been divided. And I'm afraid that maybe your devotion to Christ has been something where you, don't, you no longer have that singular focus, where he is your top priority. Maybe, maybe what's happened is that now there's an ulterior uh, agenda that has come in, that it's been, you've been divided in your interest. I think maybe a good way to think about it, just for illustration's sake, might be like this. This is probably a good way to think about it. So I think what Paul is saying is I think he's saying that that our relationship with Jesus, that the way it's intended to be for those of us who follow Christ, is that when we enter into a relationship with him, we basically say, I do. We say yes to Jesus. We say, I will follow you. And, and what we say is, by saying yes to Jesus, the Bible says that we're entering now into a relationship that is like a marriage. And what that means is there's now a priority. There's now a singular priority. And that singular priority is that the first devotion of my heart the thing that I care about the most, the thing that I'm gonna prioritize above all other things is the relationship that I have with Christ and the things that matter to him. So the things that matter to him and following him and focusing on him, that is, number, that is my singular one thing that I am to give myself to over everything else. Now here's, here's my guess. My guess is if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, you're not disagreeing with me on this. You're probably like, yes, that's, I, I agree. If I asked you, do you think that Jesus and the things of Jesus need to be the top priority in your life if you follow Christ? My guess is that to a one, if you're a follower of Jesus, you would say, yes, I agree with that. And yet, the crazy thing is, so many of us struggle to make God and to allow the things of God to be the top priority in our life. And here's the question, why is that? Why is that? And I'll tell you why I think part of it is. I think part of it is because Life happens, 
And when life happens, we get bombarded with so many competing things that sometimes we can lose sight of the most important thing. And it actually starts at a pretty young age. So even when we're in high school, you can think about how this starts, right? In high school, we think to ourselves, like if you're a follower of Jesus, you're like, I wanna follow Jesus. That's the singular priority in my life. That's the one thing, like the things of God and following God, top priority. But you're like, but you know what? I also, I also need to make sure that I get in the right college, right? So if I'm gonna get in the right college, that means that I have to take my ACTs and I gotta make sure I get a good SAT score. And if I do all those things, I also know I probably have to do some good extracurricular activities because that's gonna look good on my portfolio or whatever. And so I'm gonna get involved in some clubs and I'm gonna get involved in some sports. I'm gonna do some of this kind of stuff. Then I'm gonna get in the college I wanna get into and then I gotta make sure I get the right major. And if I get the right major, well, then I gotta buy my books and I gotta get good grades and then, you know, I gotta pay for this stuff. So I'm probably gonna have to get an extra job. And then, and then all of a sudden you meet somebody Right? And then you're like, well, now, like, we have to go out on dates, and we're going to spend all this money on this person, and then we're going to fall in love, and, you know, we're going to get engaged, and then now we're going to get married. And so if we're going to get married, then, you know, we have to pay for the wedding, and, and we're going to have to, like, arrange things, and then we're going to go on the honeymoon, and then when we come back, we have to figure out where we're going to live. Like, are we going to live in an apartment? Are we going to live in a house? And if so, like, how are we going to decorate those? So we're going to have to ask, like, Chip and Joanna Gaines, like, what we should do. And so we're going to do that. And then I'm going to get the job now, and oh, now they're offering me a promotion, and okay, I guess that means more time, and okay, now they want us to train. And then all of a sudden you're like, you know what? In the midst of all this, we should, you know what we should do? We should have some kids. So let's have some kids, you know? And then all of a sudden you're like, there's, now there's diapers and you're like, oh, you know, I gotta think about school. Like, which school are they gonna go to? Are they gonna be homeschooled? Are they gonna be public school? And are they, they're on Snapchat. What is Snapchat? And it's like, my kids need counseling now. And you know, and I, you get the idea, right? Now, yeah, right. And <laughs> can anyone relate, by the way, to that? Anyone, right? All God's people said amen, right? And listen, here's the crazy thing. At no point in the midst of any of that do I think those of us who follow Jesus think to ourselves, you know what? God and the things of God are just a waste of my time. Nowhere in there do I think that God's people actually think that. And yet, in the midst of all of this, you eventually look up and you realize that you lost him somewhere along the way. And somewhere in the middle of all of this, we, we, we drop the most important. You know what I've noticed? I'll tell you what I've noticed in my own life and being a pastor for a little while now, you know what I've noticed? I've noticed that a lot of times in the craziness and hecticness of life, that for most people who follow Jesus, the first thing that gets dropped is the things of Jesus and the things that matter to him. I can tell you in my own life, you know when things get crazy, you know what usually goes first for me? It is spending regular time with Jesus on a daily basis. In the Bible, it is fostering an intimate relation. That is usually the first thing that goes for me when I get busy. You know what I've noticed in the lives of many people who follow Jesus? Oftentimes when things get crazy, you know what the first thing that usually goes is? Biblical community, life group. Spending, prioritizing. There are over 50 one another commandments that are given in scripture that are impossible for us to obey apart from a deep community life with other believers of Jesus. And God says, that's something that matters to me. You know what often goes first? Discipleship and disciple making. The thing that Jesus commanded in Matthew 28 when he rose from the dead. You know, oftentimes goes first? Serving. Serving God's people, serving in, and, and listen, and some of you are like, well, what, what are you saying then? Are you saying that what I need to do is focus on God and the answer is to just get rid of these kids? Like, is that what you're saying? And uh, yes, that's actually exactly what I'm saying. If you want to follow Jesus, you need to get rid of your kids. That is, you can quote me on that. Put that on Twitter, right? And, no, that's not what I'm saying, right? Listen, it's not the presence of these things that are the problem. 
These things are all wonderful things. They're, they're fine things. They're good things. They're amoral things, right? But the problem is not the existence of them. The problem is when these things take priority and precedence, and as a result of them that we lose sight of the main thing, that the sincere and pure devotion, the priority of, the, of Christ and the things of Christ, that has to go first. It has to go first. Listen, I want you to hear me real carefully on this. If you're a follower of Jesus, and even if you're not a follower of Christ and you're investigating Jesus, I need you to understand this. This is so important. Look up here for a second. Following Jesus is not an addition to your already busy life. If, if I am reading the book right, then following Jesus is intended to be like a marriage relationship. And that is to utterly transform and reprioritize everything in your life. Look, when I married Jess, when we got married, it, she wasn't just an add-on to my already busy life. It was a radical reprioritization of everything because that's a relationship that takes priority. And because of that, it's, it's, it's so important that we recognize that when the Bible says that our relationship with God is like a marriage, it's speaking something, not just about intimacy, but it's also speaking something about priority. But that actually leads me to this last thing. And maybe quite possibly the most uncomfortable part of the whole conversation, which is okay because the series is called Uncomfortable. But it's this. I think it says something about fidelity. I think when we understand that our relationship with God is like a marriage relationship, that that actually brings into perspective and it illuminates this aspect of fidelity, of faithfulness. When you're in a marriage relationship with somebody, what you're doing is you're actually committing exclusively to that person. You're saying to that person, I'm gonna give you a lifetime of commitment of myself. And I'm going to give you, I'm gonna give you the best of myself and you're going to give me the best of you. And we are gonna commit to a level of intimacy and priority that is exclusive, that no one else is allowed to have this level of priority in my life. No one else can share that. This is between us. And here's what Paul says. I want you to notice this. Because again, this is, this, is, this is a little bit, this might make you feel a little bit weird, but I want you to see what he says. He says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. All right, now what's he talking about here? Well, we're all adults. Um, but I think that part of understanding what Paul is saying here is actually understanding a little bit of what weddings looked like in the first century. And so the way they would do weddings back then and the way they did marriage was actually a little bit different than the way that we do uh, marriage in our society. In our society, when you agree to get married to someone, you get engaged, and then you're engaged for a period of time, and then you get married. But if at any point during the engagement you decide to break the engagement off, uh, breaking off an engagement is emotionally painful, but it has no legal ramifications. It doesn't actually change the status of anybody. But back in these times, it was very, very different. Back in these times, they didn't do engagement. They actually had something called betrothal, and you would be betrothed to marry another person. But betrothal was not something that was entered into lightly, and it was not something that was easily broken. And so if you were betrothed to marry somebody, and let's say that you were to break off that betrothal at some point, that would actually legally be considered divorce. And if you were betrothed to someone and you were to be unfaithful to them sexually, that would be considered adultery. Legally, that would be considered adultery. It's very, very different than the society we live in right now. But I want you to notice what Paul says, because here's what Paul says. He says, I promised you, I betrothed you to one husband, to Christ. And my goal is that I might be able to present you as pure to him. That's the whole hope. But then notice what he says down here. He says, but I fear that maybe you've been led astray. 
In the same way that Eve was deceived back in the beginning in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, he says, my fear is that you also have been led astray from your sincere and pure devotion. Now, what's he talking about here? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, my fear is that you have been unfaithful to your groom. My fear is that you have given your heart and you have given your intimacy and you have given your priority and you have given your affections to another lover, that you have been unfaithful to him. And this is, this is where it gets a little difficult and a little uncomfortable because I think we need to understand that what the Bible teaches is that loyalty and, to, and fidelity to Jesus Christ means that a bride is to fully devote herself to him and the things that matter to him. I think what that means as well is that adultery, spiritual adultery, is a divided interest, right? It's, it's committing to the things that matter to the world more than the things that matter to Jesus, And the Bible would look at that and it would say, this is not just a matter of getting your priorities mixed up. It would actually take it a step further and it would say, no, this is actually spiritual adultery. I want to show you something. Look at James. Here's what James says, James 4. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Man, that's hard to hear. But what he says is, by by the way, when he says friendship, what he means is, when when your allegiance and when your devotion is to the things of the world more than the things of Christ, the Bible would say, once again, that's not just a mix-up of your priorities. It's actually deeper than that. Because if our relationship with God is one where he is our husband and we are his spouse, then it's an issue of fidelity. It's an issue of faithfulness to the one that God has. And so I think, I think what we have to understand is that busyness, busyness at the expense of the things of God is, you ready for something uncomfortable? Busyness at the expense of God, for those of us who follow Christ, is spiritual adultery to our bridegroom, who is Christ. James McDonald, he's a pastor in um, Harvest Bible Chapel in uh, Chicago, Illinois. He said something I thought was really, really insightful and equally as painful. And here's what he said. He said, on the gravestone of the American church, it will read, too busy for the things of God too busy for the things of God. And so I think that all of this forces us to ask a really important question. And here is the the important and uncomfortable question I think those of us who follow Jesus need to be willing to ask, and it's this. What needs to get dropped? If, If it is true that I find myself in a situation where I am bombarded and overwhelmed by life, and the first thing that I tend to drop is my commitment and devotion to Jesus and the things of Jesus, I think we have to ask ourselves a very uncomfortable question. And that uncomfortable question is this, what needs to get dropped? What is it, is it, is it absolutely crazy for me to suggest to you in light of what we just learned in this passage, is it absolutely crazy for me to suggest to you that if you find yourself in a place where you have no time and you have no space in your life to devote yourself to the top priority of following Jesus and the things of Christ, Is it crazy for me to suggest to you that maybe you need to seriously consider dropping something? That maybe you seriously need to consider getting rid of some of these. These are fine things. They're fine things. I'm not saying any of them are bad or whatever, but I'm saying, is it crazy for me to suggest to you that maybe you need to stop and really pause and ask the question, if Christ is top priority, what do I need to get rid of to make sure that happens? So let's get real specific. Let's just get, since we're already being uncomfortable, how about this? Would I be crazy? And would I be the most unpopular guy in the world if I, for example, asked you to consider, if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe not taking a promotion 
or maybe not choosing to take a job that, or make, maybe choosing to take a job that pays less and requires fewer hours so that you could have more time for relationships, community, and serving. Is that crazy for me to suggest that to you? That, that, that maybe instead of taking extra shifts to make more money, maybe at some point you say, you know what, I have enough money. And, and I need to, maybe because all this other, these are fine things and it's good, but maybe I need to consider that. Is that crazy? Is it crazy for me, for example, for, to ask you to consider that discipling your children to know and love Jesus and the things of Jesus, i.e. helping them build quality relationships, developing their gifts to serve Jesus, modeling a life of serving Jesus as a family, is to take precedence over sports clubs and extracurricular activities? Is that nuts? Am I just the most unpopular guy in the world to suggest this? How about this? Is it crazy to consider, for those of us who follow Christ, that playing video games, watching TV, or surfing social media for several hours a week is not as important as building up the people of God and serving in a community with other followers of Jesus? Is that insane? Am I just the most unpopular guy in the world to suggest that? Is it, cra- is it crazy for me to ask you to consider that maybe in, if it comes down to skipping life group and skipping the workout, that you would defer to skip the workout? So you're like, I gotta work out, man. I can't miss the workout. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that physical discipline is of benefit. It's a good thing to work out. It's a wonderful thing. But the Bible says spiritual discipline is of greater benefit, of eternal value. How about this? Is it crazy for me to ask you to consider that maybe is it, is it worth your time to pursue ministry equipping and a deeper knowledge of the Bible at the expense of gaining mastery over sports statistics and fantasy football brackets or whatever hobby it is? Is that nuts? I'll just tell you, so I don't want to get too crazy on this one because I, I, I know this is a little, but I'll just tell you what's, what's insane to me. I'll talk to, this is mainly specifically dudes. I'll talk to guys a lot of times and I'll say, hey, I'll say, hey, do you want to, I would love it if maybe you wanted to dig deeper in the Bible, maybe get connected to the equipping division. We could memorize scripture, scripture together. I would love to teach you how to, how to study and read and teach the Bible. Would you like to do that? And I've had guys a lot of times that say to me, like, you know what? That's just not my thing, man. I don't like to read. I just don't like to read and I'm bad at memorizing stuff. Like, I'm just bad at it. And then we'll switch topics, and we'll start talking about fantasy football or their bracket, and they will go on to quote to me from memory every stat from every football player in the league. And I'm like, you don't like to memorize stuff? Come on, right? Now, now listen, I know, I know some of this stuff, some of you guys are arguing with me in your mind already, and you're listening to this, and you're, and you're saying to yourself, you're saying, well, what are you saying, man? This is crazy. Are you saying that we just all need to be monks and that we need to live separate from the world? Is that what you're saying? And please, hear me correctly. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying at all. And I want you to hear me clearly. I'm not saying that any of these things are bad things. Is it a bad thing to be involved in fantasy football? Is it a bad, is it a bad thing to watch? But no, none of those things are bad things at all. I'm not sitting up here saying, if you watch movies, oh, that's great. You know who else watches movies? Satan. He likes movies too. Like, I'm not saying that, right? I'm not saying that. And nor am I saying, listen to me carefully, nor am I saying that followers of Jesus uh, should be exclusive, that we need to be salt, we need to be light. We, Christians need to be involved in their communities. I think that Christians ought to be the best in the workplace as far as character and work ethic is concerned. I'm not saying those things. But here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that many times we prioritize these other things so highly that the things that matter to Jesus in this relationship is what gets dropped. So we gotta ask the question. We gotta ask the question. What is it that needs to get dropped for this to become the top priority in my life? 
for the things of God and the things of Jesus to be on the top shelf of what I focus on and what I commit myself to. Because if my relationship with God is like a marriage, it says something about intimacy, it says something about priority, but it says something about fidelity. This is an exclusive, a high priority that we're to focus. Following Jesus is never intended to be a supplement to our life. It's never intended to be an addition or a vitamin supplement. He is to be an all-pervasive, completely reorienting relationship. I'm gonna ask the band to come up, and um, as the band makes their way up here, I wanna, I wanna kind of close our time in a different way than we usually do, and as we kind of finish this series and um, end this, this conversation about being uncomfortable, what I want you to do is the band's gonna play some music, and I actually wanna give you some space. I know that this conversation is a little heavy, and I know that it's not the most comfortable, but I think it's a very important conversation. And I just want to encourage you, maybe even the next few minutes when the band is playing, to just, to just process through some of this stuff. So I want to encourage you to close your eyes and bow your heads. And what I would really encourage you to do is if you're, if you're a person investigating Jesus, I would encourage everyone in this room, follower of Jesus and person that's thinking about following Jesus, I would encourage you in this time to ask yourself this question. What is the top priority in my life right now? What is the thing that if you look at my calendar, if you look at my, my, what gets dropped, what is the thing that never gets dropped? What is the thing I make sure is always right? What is my top priority? I just think you owe it to yourself to know that. And then here's the second thing. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, I wanna encourage you, would you just talk to him? Would you just talk to Christ? Would you just talk to the bridegroom? And would you just be honest with him? And maybe for you right now, would you just ask him, would you say, Jesus, what is my top priority? Are you my top priority right now? And if you would answer and say no, that he's not, that he really isn't, and you were honest, I'm just telling you, tell, talk to God about it. He is so gracious. God is so gracious. He loves you so much, and he desires you so much. He wants you to talk to him. And I would encourage you that maybe even in these moments, would you repent of that? If, there, if, you've, if you've said, you know what, God, I have put so many other things higher, would you just tell him, Lord, I have been unfaithful to you. And I want to make you the top priority in my life and ask him, what do I need to get rid of? What do I need to do to make that happen? And maybe, maybe even be willing to make a life change, change your life to keep that relationship as top priority. Let's pray. I'll pray for us and then I'll give you some space and you can talk to God as well. Well, Jesus, we just want to say thank you for your word to us tonight. And uh, Lord, I'm so thankful for this image you've given us. You've given us so many images to help us understand what you're like. And you've given us so many different pictures to help us get a picture of, of, what, of how we relate to you and how we understand you. And I'm so thankful that you didn't just give us a king and how he relates to his subjects. And you didn't just give us a shepherd and how he relates to his sheep. Those things are helpful. But I'm thankful you've given us this relationship of marriage as a picture of what you desire for us. It's a powerful metaphor. And Father, I think it speaks to, uh, to the relationship you desire. It speaks of your great love for us. And so Father, I pray you'd help us to be blown away once again from that love that you have for us. And I pray that it would transform us to respond to you. Lord, with a level of devotion and a level of fidelity. Lord, that we would be, we would be very, very careful to make sure that there's nothing else in our life that steals that priority of where you are. And so, Lord, help us to even examine our own hearts now. Help us, show us, God. And I pray you'd convict us and change us. I pray that we'd be blessed for having heard what we've heard tonight. And I pray that we'd live differently as a result of it. And I ask these things in Christ's name.